X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland in the state of Oregon. It is Tuesday, February 2nd. It's a great day to subscribe to The Local. And by the way, if you like the Today Back in the Day, you should post it with a picture, tag a friend, also maybe tag The Local, encourage someone to listen. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, February 2nd, 1840, the first recorded Groundhog Day was observed in the United States. You didn't know Bill Murray was alive that long, but for German Christians, the February 2nd holiday of Kandelmas had long been associated with Badger Day. If a badger, emerging from its hole, had a shadow due to the sun, that would mean four more weeks of winter. The tradition was brought to the United States by the Pennsylvania Dutch, who, by the way, weren't Dutch. They were German immigrants who settled in Pennsylvania. And none of them was apparently Bill Murray. The earliest mention of Groundhog Day in the United States was in 1840, comes from the diary of James L. Morris in Morgantown, Pennsylvania. The holiday wasn't made official until 1887 in Puxatawney, where people have gathered every year since, including Bill Murray. Groundhog wasn't named Phil until 1961. In modern times, the crowds gathered to see Phil have reached as big as 40,000 people, including Bill Murray. This year, the ceremony is going to be behind closed doors. Phil will be wearing a mask. And you know who won't be there? Ned Ryerson, played by Stephen Tobolowski. Phil Connors? Phil Connors, I thought that was you. Uh, how you doing? Thanks for watching. Hey, hey. Now, don't you tell me you don't remember me because I sure as heck fire remember you. Not a chance. <laughs> Ned! Ryerson! Needle nose Ned, Ned the head. Come on, buddy. Case Western High. Ned Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Ned Ryerson got the shingles real bad senior year, almost didn't graduate. Bing! Again! Ned Ryerson, I dated your sister Mary Pat a couple times till you told me not to anymore. Well? Ned Ryerson? Bing! Bing! <laughs> Today, back in the day, February 2nd, 1922, Ulysses by James Joyce was published in its entirety. The modernist novel was originally published in parts in the Little Review between 1918 and 1920. It was very, very long, and by doing it bit by bit, maybe people didn't notice just how long it was. But finally, February 2nd, 1922, James Joyce's 40th birthday, American publisher Nancy Beach released the full first edition through Shakespeare and Company. According to Joyce scholars, the first editions had around 2,000 mistakes, which was difficult for editors because many of the mistakes were intentional. And the book was really long. Since that first edition, there have been at least 18 others. The book was the subject of many censorship attempts. In 1921, the book was declared legally obscene by a U.S. court. Finally, in 1933, in the court case United States versus one book called Ulysses, a judge ruled the book was, in fact, not pornographic. The United States then became the first English-speaking country where one could freely buy the entire book. Ulysses is often cited as one of the most important and difficult books of the 20th century, with or without its errors. Today is the second day of Black History Month. We're focusing on an important Portlander, Harriet Hattie Redmond. Hattie Redmond, born 1862, passed away in 1957, born in St. Louis, moved with her family to Portland in 1880. She was deeply involved in her church, the Mount Olivet Baptist Church, originally located in what is now Broadway and Everett. The church became a hub of suffrage activity as Redmond held meetings there for the Colored Women's Equal Suffrage Club during the 1912 campaign. 
That organization was vital to the inclusion of African-American women in the fight for universal suffrage. She also worked on the state central campaign committee, ensuring women of color were integrated in the successful campaign of 1912. Today we'll have our weekly city council update from Portland. We'll also have an interview with Street Roots reporter Chris May. X-Ray. And first up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. On Monday, Oregon's new drug decriminalization measures went into effect. Oregon voters passed Measure 110 in November, making drug possession of serious drugs but in small amounts punishable by a $100 fine. What does it look like in action? Well, Portland Police Officer Melissa Newhard said it'll save officers time since they'll just have to write a ticket for those offenses. However, records will still show which people were stopped for drug possession. Newhart also says this won't reduce the number of police on the street or the frequency of stop and search. For those who are issued a fine, they can waive it by undergoing a health screening, after which, if it is found they have an addiction, they'll be offered a state-sponsored treatment. Those found with larger amounts and clear intent to sell are still subject to criminal charges. Steve Allen with the Oregon Health Authority told a legislative committee that offering people standalone drug treatment likely won't be effective. Here's his quote. He said, many people who have addictions also have mental illness, physical health problems, mental problems. We think the best, strongest, most effective approach is to ensure that people who call into the line have access to a broad range, not only behavioral health services, including co-occurring services, but primary care services. Last year, by the way, the state saw a 70 percent increase in overdoses. Proponents of the measure would like to overhaul the way Oregon handles drug addiction. Critics are concerned that one of the primary levers to get people into treatment was the threat of more serious prosecution. Let us hope that is not necessary. And now your daily dose of data. On Monday, the Oregon Health Authority confirmed 964 new coronavirus cases, bringing the state total to 143,373. One additional death has been reported putting the death toll at 1,958. Currently, 271 Oregonians are hospitalized with the virus, and as of Monday, 438,299 doses of the vaccine have been administered. Protests emerged at Benson Polytechnic High School this weekend, demanding schools reopen. Protesters carried signs reading, Science Not Screens, Occupy the Classroom, and Shame on the Teachers' Union. Speakers shared their stories to the roughly 60 parents and children in attendance. One said, quote, if teachers get vaccinated, they need to get back to work. They're getting something we all desperately want, so get the vaccine and do your job. The city's current plan for opening schools again could see children who have been failing and falling behind in independent sessions as soon as this month. A hybrid model which allows people to opt out of in-person learning is set to begin in April. John McGowan, a teacher at Scott Elementary, says he worries about the way students will spread it to their communities. Quote, my students live with their seniors. That scares me completely that they can bring home COVID-19 to them and lose a loved one. Others believe that risks aren't as big as what students are facing with distance learning. Governor Kate Brown has been criticized for both keeping schools closed and for rushing the reopening process. Despite the eviction moratorium, one company has filed 63 evictions since April. Income property management has become Multnomah County's top evictor amid the pandemic. The Public Housing Authority manages 2,400 units, including those owned by Home Forward, which have faced 30 of those 63 evictions. Home Forward owns 10 buildings and 1,200 units. They say their mission is to provide affordable and stable housing. Here's the quote, we believe that everyone deserves a roof over their head and that everyone is capable of improving their lives regardless of their current situation. The moratorium prevents evictions for non-payment, meaning these were all allegedly due to different lease violations. 
According to reporting from OPB, those complaints include loud yelling, a strong odor of cigarette smoke, and repeated burning of sage. Now that sounds political. Prior to the pandemic, income property management had an eviction rate of 10%. Home Forward had a 4% rate of eviction. Have you been getting unwanted emails from Senator Brian Boquist? Many Oregonians have. Oregon Senator Brian Boquist has been sending emails for the last several months that appear to be from the state legislature. With the subject line weekly news clip, the topics range from state-run media to the efficacy of coronavirus testing and speculation of politicians manipulating the pandemic for political gain. One recipient, Rebecca Vandermile, told the Register Guard, quote, It almost felt like I was being solicited to go along with his anti-governmental theories or whatever he's proposing. I just found it ironic because he's a public servant. Interestingly, the only governmental email list she's subscribed to is the Oregon Health Authority's daily COVID updates. Additionally, the way emailing is set up for senators easily allows them to edit the sender on any correspondence. So these emails from Senator Boquist appeared to be from O-R-S-T-A-T-E-L-E-G or or state ledge at service.govdelivery.com. Boquist has not yet made a statement regarding these emails. Earlier this year, the senator removed himself from the Republican Party and registered as an independent. It's not currently clear why. The Republican Party in Oregon is shrinking. State voter registration shows that 11,000 Oregonians have left the Republican Party since the election. That said, 8,500 registered Democrats have also left the party. 1,900 Washington County Republicans abandoned that party following a trend of registering as an independent. Among those, former gubernatorial nominee Newt Bueller. He told the New York Times he knew it was time to leave, and the Republican Party of Oregon issued a statement condemning Republican Congress members who voted to impeach then-President Donald Trump. Unaffiliated Oregon voters have risen by 10,000 in the past months. And finally, some good news. Portlanders can once again fill up on Japanese egg salad sandwiches. Last year, Giraffe Goods, purveyor of Japanese deli foods, closed with Tokyo Sando following suit shortly after. A rift was left in the Portland food scene. Now our beloved Shokupen egg salad sandwiches are back with the launch of Fulimingo, an online Japanese market. Behind Fulimingo is the Giraffe Goods founders. Their delivery services offer snacks, sake, onigiri, and so much more. Owner Kena Kinohara Hansen writes, quote, While we are sad about how all of the food spots we love have been affected by the pandemic, We are thinking of ways we can still bolster aspects of human connection, even in how we operate Fulamingo.com. And that's today's today's Quick Quick 6 Local Rundown. rundown. X-Ray. It's been great seeing you, Needlehead. Take care. (laughs) Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. (laughs) Next up is our weekly spotlight on Portland City Council happenings. This is your weekly City Council Update. Welcome listeners to the weekly City Council Update. On January 27th, Council accepted the Joint Terrorism Task Force report, which outlined cases of reported terrorism in Portland. In 2020, the FBI referred to the Portland Police Bureau to investigate four reports, three of which it was found that no crime was committed and the fourth involved a confrontation between two white males. The PPB then referred six cases to the FBI, including threats to officials, threats of targeted violence, and a bomb threat. Following the report, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty asked why white supremacist terrorism was not outlined in the report. 
The officer replied, explaining that those were under the Civil Rights Divisions and that the Joint Terrorism Task Force's information is not subject to public oversight in the same way that the Portland Police Bureau operations are, mostly due to their affiliation with the federal and state departments. Council then went on to authorize short-term subordinate urban renewal and redevelopment bonds for Prosper Portland to finance projects in urban renewal areas. Prosper Portland's Urban Renewal Division serves to, quote, help communities improve and redevelop areas that are physically deteriorated, suffering economic stagnation, unsafe, or poorly planned. Critics of the program believe it removes African-American communities and gentrifies neighborhoods, citing that Prosper Portland is a rebranding of the same program that displaced families in the Emanuel Hospital expansion of the 70s. Additionally, Council amended the Building Demolition Code to require major residential alteration projects to comply with the same site control regulations as residential demolitions. In related news, Mayor Ted Wheeler hired former Mayor Sam Adams to help advance the mayor's second-term goals around homelessness, public safety, and livability issues. He also hired Dr. Markeisha Smith to be his special advisor on racial equity. And that's it for your weekly City Council update. More information, including agendas and virtual City Council meetings, can be found at portlandoregon.gov forward slash auditor. X-ray. Next up, we have Street Roots investigative reporter Chris May. Chris and Andy Lindbergh discuss the federal and local mortgage moratoriums and insights on the housing market. Here are Chris and Andy with more on Chris's article, Lenders poised to pounce on homeowners fighting foreclosure, which you can find on streetroots.org. Here are Andy and Chris. Joe Biden has extended the national eviction moratorium at least through March. The city of Portland has extended that moratorium until July. But mortgage lenders are already preparing for the day that the rents are due. Here to help us unpack the complicated world of the mortgage market is investigative reporter Chris May. Good morning, Chris. Morning. Uh, so the housing market is complex. Can you give us kind of the scaffolding of things, the, the gist of your article, and then, then we can try to break it down in smaller pieces? Yeah, sure. So right now there's a significant sector of the population uh, that has yet to recover from the last economic crisis um, that happened in 2008 when the housing market essentially imploded. Um, and while this crisis is different, um, a lot of the issues with the way the housing market structured um, are are still around um, and have, have created challenges for roughly the, the 2 million people, for instance, who um, have their mortgage payments paused um, and then uh, another group of, of folks, um, it's estimated around 100,000 people in Oregon um, who are behind currently on their mortgage payments. Um, and so we've seen, you know, action from federal and state lawmakers to um, put some uh, moratoria in place to keep people from being evicted and to keep them from being foreclosed on. Um, but one uh, moratorium has already expired, uh, foreclosure moratorium mm-hmm. uh, for folks who own homes um, and so you know we kind of have been hearing a lot about you know there's a wave around the corner an eviction wave a foreclosure wave um, and every time we sort of sidestepped it 
Um, but sooner or later, the music's going to stop, and you know we need to figure out what's going to happen. Otherwise, we could see some pretty widespread uh, devastation. So, who we've got the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, uh, what's what's their role in in this uh, story? Yeah. So, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created in large part as a response to um, what we saw during. Uh, you know, post-2008 with the Great Recession, um, you have just a wave of, of foreclosures. You have uh, widespread fraud. Um, lots of people essentially had their homes stolen from them illegally. Um, and then in addition, you have a lot of different um, sort of, you know, credit card companies, payday lenders, um, sort of this, this secondary financial system aside from traditional banks um, that were not very tightly regulated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could have sky high interest rates, you could have sort of predatory terms on a lot of loan products. Um, And so around 2011, a new, a new federal agency uh, was created with, with the goal of protecting consumers, uh, making sure that your credit reports accurate, things like that. And and, um, and that's the the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau CFPB. Um, yeah. How how has COVID nineteen affected what they do or can do? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, one one sort of trend that that has has been apparent during the pandemic is, you know, no matter what industry you're in, the, the pandemic has presented challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those challenges will be different depending on what the industry is. Obviously, if you're Zoom, it's a little bit easier to weather the storm than if you're a nursing home. Um, but, you know, all of these industries have rules and they have oversight mechanisms that are designed, uh, among other things, to prevent bad behavior, uh, protect consumers. And one one thing you've seen with a lot of the financial sectors is, you know, COVID puts puts uh, makes it tough to comply with reporting requirements, makes it tough to basically follow the rules on top of doing everything else. Um, and so, one one thing that has been put forward is, you know, industries will say we need some relief because of this pandemic. Can we just temporarily not, you know? Uh, play by some of these rules until mm-hmm. until this pandemic subsides. Um, and so the CFPB has the power to basically say, well, you know, normally you have to report certain information. Normally you have to provide consumers with, with information about how they can, you know, pause their mortgages. Um, but for right now, we're not going to really enforce those rules. Um, but, you know, please just make sure you follow them anyway. Yeah, there's that's a, an interesting point that that there who who has a voice in this. Um, so uh, you you touched on it uh, on some of them briefly. Uh, can you talk a little bit who are the other major actors in this story other than the CFPB? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I mean the the sort of mortgage market, it really is a complex machine. Um, and as, as it's currently designed, when the average person takes out a home loan, uh, the majority of those don't stay with whatever bank or whatever company created that loan. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens is you'll take a loan out, 
um, and then it will be sort of sliced and diced and a bunch of different actors. It could be um, hedge funds. It could be retirement. You know, it could be PERS. Uh, a lot of a lot of 401ks um, are invested in sort of these um, home loans that have been transformed into uh, investment vehicles. And so every time you make your monthly mortgage payment, a little chunk of that is going to go to an intermediary. Um, mm-hmm. You know, another fee is going to go to another company who's, you know, part of that supply chain that ultimately uh, transforms, you know, one home loan into a piece of an $11 trillion uh, financial services market. That's um, fascinating. I had yeah. never, I had never thought about that before that um, our PERS, which is our public employee retirement fund is partially funded by us paying our mortgages. Yeah. And that's the side effect of, of most retirements being tied to the stock market. And most, um, you know, the, the thing is in a financial crisis, all, all of the investors still want to get good returns on their investments. Um, and so, at the same time, people are trying to uh, get relief from paying bills they can't pay because they lost their job. Um, a lot of the investments in making sure that they pay them are are fighting to, you know, essentially protect their investments. So there's there's definitely a tension and a conflict between, you know, relief for average people and relief for investors and some of the, the larger financial machinery that kind of depends on people people paying the bills. Yeah, I, I can't just call up all of the different uh, organizations and, and financial institutions that own tiny slivers of my mortgage and ask them for relief. Um, that's, that's complicated. So what happens if if these moratoria on foreclosures expire? Yeah, that's, that's sort of the multi-trillion dollar question. <laughs> um, it, it, it does sort of depend. Uh, one way that this crisis is sort of different from the last one is most people's homes are worth more than they were um, when, they first, when they first bought them. Um, so one of the worst case scenarios is, well, you know, I don't have any income, but I'm, I'm sort of sitting on this asset that's appreciated, so I could just, I could just sell it, you know, and get a little bit of extra money. Um, still have to find a place to live, mm-hmm. but at least I'm not on the hook or, you know, I can still potentially avoid, avoid being foreclosed on, having that credit hit, having to sort of slog through the multi-year process of um, losing my home, essentially. Um, but there's, you know, another, another sort of wrinkle to this is, because of that sort of decentralized mortgage market uh, system, there are a few actors involved in that supply chain that have financial incentives to actually steer you toward foreclosure rather than keeping your home, um, you know, getting a lower payment. Um, because again, if, if you lower your payments, then that means that's hurting the bottom line of, of other folks who had essentially uh, bet that you would you would be paying that at a certain rate for a certain period of time. Yeah, you you uh, you opened the article uh, talking about a company, which under these circumstances sounds a little sinister, uh, called Easy Knock Incorporated, that yeah. uh, has been essentially saving up money to 
buy foreclosed houses and then rent them back to the people who they bought them from? Is is that is that a a popular or or likely scenario for a lot of of people who go into foreclosure? Well, what what we saw, you know, post two thousand eight was um, a bunch of a bunch of foreclosed homes um, that banks were having trouble selling, um, and so that was the sort of creation of an entirely new type of investment, which was taking a bunch of single family homes rolling them together um, and then uh, having, you know, hedge funds or private equity companies uh, managing them from afar. Okay. Um, so we're, we're probably not going to see something like that. But if you look back to March, there were already a lot of banks who, frankly, had, had trillions of dollars just sitting around not knowing what to do with. Um, and, you know, you can find quotes where people are saying, you know, our thoughts and our thoughts and prayers go out to people who are suffering during this time. But as a real estate investor, um, if you take the emotion out of it, you know, people have been waiting for something like this for a long time. And so, uh, it's, it's hard to say definitively what, what form, um, the transfer of wealth will take. Um, but in these situations, somebody's crisis is another, another person's opportunity. You mentioned in the in kind of in the beginning of the article how um, a lot of landlords in Portland are like small time landlords who own maybe a couple houses and rent them out with, you know, eviction moratoriums and foreclosure mor- moratoriums coming to an end. How is that affecting how is that going to affect that economy in Portland? Uh, yeah, that's I mean, it's you know, a, a lot of the, the discourse is sort of uh, renters versus landlords. Um, you know, in sort of one group versus the other group. But I think across all of those groups, there's a hierarchy within that. So, you know, there's the, the huge national landlords um, who have various forms of financial engineering that will, you know, allow them to, to access credit that can help them weather the storm. Um, but if you're just a retired couple who has one or two places that you use as sort of, you know, your, your retirement plan because you're not going to live off Social Security, um, if you've been going eight months without rent, um, unless you can get the bank to pause your, your mortgage, you're in a, you're in a pretty tough spot. Um, so what, what I've been hearing is, you know, a lot of smaller landlords are saying, you know, it's just, it's just not worth it. I'm, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that the real estate market, the residential real estate market is, is pretty hot right now. Um, and it might not be hot forever to just sort of get out from under this thing um, and have a little bit of stability. Uh, unfortunately, what that means for, um, you know, a state and a country really that is still going through an affordable housing crisis, uh, that means that there'll be fewer um, affordable units uh, for people to live in. Hmm. So uh, we've, we've got about a, a minute uh, here. Um, what, what can, what, can homeowners be be doing what can be what are the options for homeowners who are affected by the pandemic and can't pay their mortgage yeah great question um so roughly 70 percent of mortgages um, are backed by the federal government in one form or another um and that entitles you to a uh forbearance which is basically just a pause it doesn't mean you don't have to pay uh eventually but you can you can put a pause on that 
uh, for up to a year. Um, there's various strings attached, but uh, you know, that's, if you're, if you're struggling to, to make your payments, you can, you can reach out to your, uh, loan servicer, um, and it, at least get a little bit of breathing room. Um, you can also, uh, ask for a loss mitigation application. So, you know, get what paperwork you can fill it out. Um, there's, uh, housing and urban development certified housing counselors that can walk you through that process um, often at no cost. So reach out to them. Um, but I've also heard uh, advocates say, make sure you're keeping records um, of what you're told and, and what you're filing just to protect yourself. Um, and, a- and in worst case scenario, um, reach out to some uh, attorneys, legal aid, uh, bankruptcy attorneys. A lot of them can give you consultation for, for no cost. Yeah, that's a that's a very important thing is to keep records. I um oh, I had a question and then Andy <laughs> smiled at me and I lost it. <laughs> well, uh, this this article is uh, uh a a really great dive into a complex uh issue um and you know, th- th- uh, as a as a renter, um, it's been a challenging time. I I know that um, you know clearly um, uh, homeowners of all stripes are also uh, challenged by this. Um, this article is in uh, this week's uh, edition of uh, Street Roots. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It should be out uh, out today. So if you you have a vendor you can you can pick it up all right i highly encourage everyone to read this article it is dense and full of good information so chris Mm -hmm. thank you so much yeah thanks for having me great thanks for your time thanks to chris for joining the local thank you for listening to the local your hometown in less than 30 minutes almost always thanks for subscribing thanks for your five-star review and thank you democracy talk to you tomorrow X-Ray.